Welcome to class three of our church history uh, class here at Grace Community Church. Uh, Neil, toward the end of last uh, session, I read a quote by Irenaeus. There's another very important quote uh, listed at at the beginning of one of our chapters. Yeah, chapter eight. This is uh, Irenaeus of Lyon. Error never shows itself in its naked reality in order not to be discovered. On the contrary, it dresses elegantly so that the unwary may be led to believe that it is more truthful than truth itself. Now, last week's quote was very pastoral. You could sense the shepherd's heart in Irenaeus. And this one seems a little more theological in nature. So how is it also pastoral? Um, The the first responsibility of an elder, uh, of a church leader, is to protect the flock from error. Uh, to promote truth and also to protect against error. And so it's very important for an elder uh, to think theologically as well as biblically. Um, I, I, I think that we all want to think biblically, but some people in the church are called to think at a little bit of a, a deeper or a higher level in order to understand how the scriptures work with each other. Uh, essentially, Irenaeus is saying the closer that error is to truth, the more dangerous mm-hmm. it is. So, say, for instance, the Mormon faith. They they use a lot of the language that we use, but there's great danger there, is there not? Yeah, the same words, different definitions. Um, God, Jesus, salvation, faith. That's right, but they're not... As you say, different definitions. They're not saying the same things that we're saying. Well, this was very true in the early church. And, of course, Irenaeus identified it. So how do you tell the difference between the truth and heresy? Uh, well, the, the early church didn't have the scriptures. So uh, one of the ways that they would be able to determine truth was to see what the leaders of the church said. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch was one of the early leaders who identified the role, the special role that bishops had to play. Now, bishop comes from the Greek word episkopos, the two primary words uh, used for the church leader in scripture are bishop and elder. Bishop coming from episkopos, as I say, and that's the word from which we get our Uh, word Episcopal, and Episcopal leadership or Episcopal ecclesiology, Episcopal forms of church government uh, come from this word. Uh, We emphasize, probably at Grace, we emphasize more the word elder, which comes from the Greek word presbyteros. So why did the church, uh, in the early church, all indications are immediately after the apostles uh, there was this understanding of a group leadership, but it began uh, to move toward a, a, a heavy emphasis on the leadership of the church, a, a top-heavy kind of a structure. Why did that happen? Yeah, if you look back in Acts, everywhere that we see Paul went, he revisited those churches and he established elders, plural, within mm-hmm. each and every church. And then last week we talked about uh, some of those early heresies that really uh, got into the, the heart of the Christian world and started to uproot it, like uh, Marcionism and different forms of Gnosticism and so forth. So I think along the same strain of what Ignatius was talking about is the the power that the bishop needs, bishop singular over the plurality, is because within one person, if you can uh, grasp power in one person, it's easier, it's quicker to extinguish heresy. You can understand the pragmatic reasons why. It's a quick, efficient way of declaring some things true, some things false. However, as we see down through the generations, like the same thing that we see with a lot of uh, movements in early church history, there are benefits and there are drawbacks. And the further we get away from Scripture we start seeing more and more of those drawbacks. So generations from Ignatius, which is around the the turn of the the early 2nd century, um, we see his 
desire for one bishop to maintain purity actually being misused into the more hierarchical Episcopal government that, that we've come to recognize down through the ages. Ignatius, uh, in fact, while he was in Antioch, understood that um, one bishop had to have, uh, well, I say he understood that this was his understanding, that one bishop should be the one who was the ultimate authority, and it seemed like God had established that in Rome. Not in the same way that we wouldn't see that the same way that Roman Catholics would see it, that Peter was the first pope of Rome, right. and then he passed it down, and then Clement, we, uh, a lot of people would identify as the third pope. Clement was a very important figure in, in Rome. I suppose uh, uh, you say the more authority that, that goes into one person, the, the more dangerous it is, because that person, if, if he's not biblically grounded, uh, I think the early church, though, recognized that the ones who spent the most time in thought and in prayer uh, were the ones that were the most qualified to speak. And, of course, anything that they taught had to be affirmed by other bishops and other leaders of the church, elders, deacons of the churches. It's just like what I've heard you say many times, that theology is best worked out in community. It's the responsibility of that, that bishop um, to care for the, the flock. If that one person is led away a little bit, he leads the whole flock with him. So it's best to sort of balance each other out with a multitude, uh, a multiplicity of, of eldership. Yes, and and uh, it was difficult, though, uh, for that to happen in those early years because of persecution. Can you imagine uh, just during the, the heaviest part of the persecutions, maybe during under Trajan or, or someone like that, uh, your, your um, presbyter is killed and your deacon is now um, put into the place of bishop and he is hauled away to the, the, the games. So who's going to be the next bishop? You? Me? <laughs> there were bishops who came from other cities, grabbed them, and said, you are now the bishop of this city. I mean, how would we respond under similar circumstances? Yeah, I, I, we talked about that last time. I, I'm not exactly sure how we would respond to persecution. And you have to admire these men who knew that they were the targets above anyone else in the church, mm -hmm. the leaders of the church, and especially the, 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 the more important, important place, the more prominent role that a particular bishop of a particular city had, the greater the, the target that he was. Well, uh, we understand why uh, the people of the, the first few centuries put so much uh, trust in the bishops in determining what the apostles taught. Uh, but how do you know uh, best what the apostles taught? There was a, a movement to try to get as close to the apostles as you possibly could. Irenaeus, we, we've talked about this particular man. Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of? John the Apostle. John the Apostle. Uh, but no one understood Irenaeus having received the mantle of, uh, ap uh, 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 of the, the lead authority. bishop or apostolic authority. Yeah. But there was a desire for that. Yeah. So what did that lead to? Well, it's something that we're going to see, I think, probably in both semesters of church history when we look at what's called apostolic succession. How did the authority pass from the apostles to who else once the apostles' lives on this earth were, were ended? Um, and, and we see that being passed on by the you can say, ordination of bishops, that hands were laid on them and they received the authority. They weren't the same as apostles. Even Clement, in his letter to the Corinthians, recognized that they were not apostles, but yet as close as they can come to the apostles, the closer they are to the truth. And as you go out away from what the apostles taught, i.e. Scripture, the further you are from, from truth. So apostolic succession, though over the centuries the Catholic Church may have put into it, poured into it a different meaning than we would uh, prefer, it, it, did ha it did serve a very good purpose. Yes, in fact, 
uh, it's probably what Ignatius had in mind when he said, um, what does the bishop say? You want to know whether or not a teacher is telling the truth or not? What does the bishop say? And you can also understand why people especially look to, to the bishop of Rome. Peter's life ended there. Paul's life ended there. A great deal of uh, the last days of the, uh, uh, of the scriptures were written or the last letters of scripture right. were written from Rome. Uh, and so uh, it would just go to stand a reason that, that this truth was passed from Paul to others who were near to him and, and, and it just went down. Well, it, it passed on down from one, one to another. Uh, it's difficult though. There's really no way to trace apostolic succession. I mean, people try. In fact, there are people today that will tell you that's the case. And as you say, when we get to the Reformation, it's going to play a role. Um, The church began to take on uh, a greater and greater role in saying what Scripture teaches and also how the church should function. The leaders of the church began to take on this role. Cyprian uh, is a is a bishop from the second, or excuse me, third century, who made a statement that we would find quite controversial. Let's talk about this a little bit as we talk about the rise of uh, the Episcopal Church. Uh, Cyprian said, he cannot have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. Now, that sounds very Roman Catholic to us, but it was, uh, this statement was made, in fact, it's one of the most famous statements in all of of Christianity. We don't think about it much because we're so far, we have such an aversion to uh, complete and absolute control by church leadership. Uh, we say that the scriptures are the final authority. But what did Cyprian have in mind? And why was it not necessarily uh, men in the same way we would think it is? Right. Yeah, I think it can be taken in, in a number of different ways. And um, like you said, we think of it as a Roman Catholic thing. They are the ones who um, lean heavily on that statement. Um, but again, at this point, it was no Roman Catholic. It was just Catholic with a small c. Again, we talked about that last time, the universal church. So I, I think what he was aiming at, and this is in the midst of, of persecution, people who are lapsing in their confession of faith when, when faced with um, pro- persecution, prosecution, perhaps martyrdom, and people were finding... Uh, revelation outside of Scripture. Uh, He was basically drawing a line in the sand. Either you are Christ, and as Christ you are part of not only the church universal, but you must be integrated into the local assembly. If you are not part of the church, you, you are not part of Christ's body, and therefore you are not in the faith of Christ. So one very real aspect, he was right on, that you you can't have... Christ as you know, God as Father, without also being integrated into the church. So there's a good distinction between what was historically meant and what history has come to mean down through the ages. Right. Roman Catholics today would say, well, if you're not connected to the church, Their church. the only church, yes, our church, then you are outside of salvation. In fact, that is a a comment that you will hear from some Catholics even yeah. today. And, mm-hmm. um, but it's not a, it, it, it really is, in, in some ways it's a corrective. The idea is a corrective to our thought that, uh, look, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst also. I am there in their midst also, Jesus said. But Jesus wasn't really talking about the fact that whenever two or three Christians get together, then, you, then you're having church. He was talking about the church's authority to discipline people. And essentially, in that Matthew 18 passage, uh, Jesus was saying something very similar to what Cyprian said, uh, if it's understood correctly. Cyprian's comment, understood correctly, indicates that if you are apart from the church, you're outside of Christ. You've got to submit yourself. Yes. Submit yourself to the authority of, of the church leadership. Mm-hmm. So how does that speak to our very um, casual approach to church today? Well, I, I suppose we can still take issue with it. <laughs> it may not may no longer be a Roman Catholic uh, quote, but now 
it's offending our individuality, our right to go down to the church down the road. Um, why would we submit ourselves to someone that, who we don't, we may not agree with? Um, I, I think there's definitely a line that we cross all too often as a modern American Christians that we want the church to be made in our image, whatever we right. want. Well, I think it's fair to say that the early church was impacted greatly by the culture. We've already discussed this. Uh, the, the the government structure in the Roman Empire, of course, mm-hmm. was imperial. Uh, there was one emperor, and then there was a, 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 a congress, but not, the, mm-hmm. not in the kind of way that we have a, a congress today, a senate. There was a body of lawmakers, but the emperor had the ultimate say. And so consequently, the church sort of morphed into that kind of government. Um, it came to model itself after society rather than impacting society to do the, the reverse. Yeah. And so today, our government, of course, is that of a democracy. It's where, where the majority opinion carries the rule. Now, it's not entirely like that. It's, we're more of a republic than we are a democracy. Right. But, but we tend to model church after democracy. And mm-hmm. in America, especially, we say, hey, it's a free country. I can do whatever I want to within certain limits. And certainly, when you go to a church, you're, a, you're, you're, you're volunteering your time there. You're, you're, you're freely attending. You're, you're serving others. And you're free to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Scripture paints a bit of a different picture. Yeah, I think so, and maybe we can get your, your feedback on this, but um, I think you're right that many churches today in America model themselves after American government, and we retain our right to, to speak up and disagree on anything and everything in any way that we please. I want to reach back to what Paul said, that uh, our liberty, we have liberty, but... Really, isn't part of our liberty, the goal of it is to restrict our own rights so we don't offend our, our brothers? Indeed, Paul says in Galatians 5, you've been called to liberty, brothers, but don't use your liberty as an occasion to the flesh. And he, he's speaking about uh, illicit behavior. He's saying, don't just because you're free in Christ doesn't mean you're free to sin any way that you want to. But it's true that our liberty in Christ also binds us to him, mm-hmm. and it binds us to one another. And it's far too casual uh, an approach to Christianity to say, well, if something is said in this church that I don't like, then I'm going to go down the road to another church. Uh, I, in the past, have, have tried to stand at the door when people are coming in from, from gospel-preaching, gospel-believing churches. I want to know why, why you're coming. I've, I've given up on that, and certainly I don't try to stand in the way when someone wants to leave our church. But I would say that it's a good principle to follow. If you're going to leave a church, have a gospel reason Mm. for it. Uh, He cannot have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, if you leave a church, you're, 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 you're in danger of... Of, of no longer being saved. We believe that when you do belong to Jesus, you will always. But it should inform our thinking that we are connected to the church. And the truth is found in the church. That's why, though, our church and every gospel-preaching, gospel-believing church needs to make sure that the leaders of that church and, again, Back to the benefit of it being a plurality of leaders. Mm -hmm. Lord Acton's maxim, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. That was the problem with the the imperial church eventually. Uh, uh, Inevitably, it was going to go that way. It was going to corrupt the people who were making all of the decisions about truth. But certainly when a group of men, and when they are staying connected to the body at large, and the understanding of truth amongst theologians in the church, then you're protected. If nothing else, it should remind us that there are no Lone Ranger Christians. That's right. We shouldn't be out on our own. That's right. Well, we're going to talk about the impact that philosophy had on the church 
in a little bit. And then we're going to also talk about canon. Sean is going to talk to us about how the New Testament scriptures came to be accepted. They came into being when they were written, but they came to be accepted many years later. So look forward to those discussions. Looking forward to it. In the last session, uh, uh, last segment of this session, we talked about the influence of Rome on the structure of the church leadership. Uh, Athens had quite a bit to say in the way that a number of people in the church thought, not everyone, but a number of people with its influence on philosophy. How did philosophy uh, tie into theology? That's a good question. It's a, it's a big question. It, and, it is a big question, and one that it, it's, it's still... Uh, is being asked today. Right, right. And, and by Athens, you mean philosophy, the philosophy of the world, basically, because that was the center of Greek culture. That's where philosophy was, was born. And um, this is it's interesting, because uh, we were going to cover about a century's worth of material from Justin, who's known as Justin Martyr, because he gave his life right. um, for the defense of the gospel. And, and his um, ministry was to defend, or the apologia, the defense of the faith. And we're going to move all the way up to um, Clement, Origen, and again, our favorite so far, Tertullian of of Carthage. And we're going to see how philosophy interacted with with them in particular and the mood of the church throughout the, the second and third centuries. And I think what strikes me about the role of Justin is... He was answering criticism, objections to Christianity. And for a long time, that was what I wanted to do. If I was on a message board or something like that, and I saw people asking questions, you know, evolution versus creation. Well, what about this aspect of Christianity? I wanted to answer questions, answer objections. And so that resonated with me with, with Justin. And I know several of this uh, comes into your field of interest also. It, it does. Justin um, a- actually uh, was trying to answer the criticism against the church that uh, it was made up of uneducated, simple, common folk who really were unthoughtful in the way that they approach religion. Uh, Justin uh, sought to uh, show how thoughtful Christianity is. And in fact, one of the uh, principles that Justin emphasized was logos, which was both a Greek and a Hebrew word. Uh, Neil, I, I, I know that this particular area is a, is a particular interest to you, this philosophy with as we talk about Justin and Clement and Origen in particular. So I'm going to let you take a, a lot of this session. Tell us more about Justin. Okay. Um, Justin was, I don't think he ever made it as a bishop, but he was born in the Judea area, and actually served, ministered in, in Rome. And he was known as, well, he was the premier apologist. Uh, there were several people who defended the faith uh, in those days, but Justin seems to rise as the cream of the crop in our minds when we discuss the apologist. And the apologist, the apology is the defense, the defending, just as you were saying, against critique, against objections that, as we talked in week two, that the thought was Christianity spread among the slaves and the women, you know, the, the baser form of, of um, society. And Justin came along and said, you know what? It, Christianity is different than Roman or Greek um, religion, but it's not unthinking. It's not unreasonable. So what he did was take theories like the Logos, Logos, Logos. It's the same thing that we see in the opening chapter of John. In the beginning was the, the, the word. word. So he is very scriptural minded mm-hmm. in in his processing of Logos theology and and that is something that we can delve deep into and not really plumb the depths of it because Logos theology was near the center of um, the philosophy of the church, you may say, for, for centuries, throughout the, the first several centuries of the early church. And uh, his main thrust was to battle these unreasoning errors in the minds of uh, philosophers and Greeks and Romans and say, Christianity is legitimate. It's not only true, but if you think about it, it makes sense. And he made sense of what is Logos 
because the Greeks were familiar with ultimate reality. They, and, and they thought of, uh, you say logos, I say lagos, uh, tomato, tomato. Um, lagos for, for the Greeks was, um, it, it was the principle that governed the universe. And uh, for Hebrews, it was the expression of God. It was right. God giving his truth. Uh, Greeks saw it as a principle that was already in place and it sort of directed man. And the Hebrews saw it as, some, as, as, as an expression of God directing us more uh, fully and, and, and specifically. Well, of course, when you say that Jesus is the word of God, then that puts Lagos into a person. But Justin saw uh, an opportunity here to combine the two. Yeah, he, he took the wording, the, the vocabulary that Greeks were already familiar with within their own philosophy, and it was the very same words that John used writing in Greek his gospel. You've got logos, we got logos. <laughs> That's right. And let me explain to you what it is. Yes. Is, is basically what he said. Is um, You Greeks have this idea, and just like Paul did at, at Mars Hill, you have this altar to an unknown God, let me explain to you exactly what this unknown God is. And that's basically what Justin did, is he used those points that every so often Greek philosophers may have gotten right. And from this, we'll see that we've got the, the quote, the notion that all truth is God's truth, which actually was uh, the mantra of Clement, another church philosopher, and uh, he was from Alexandria. This is a different Clement than the Clement of Rome, uh, who lived near the turn of the first and second century. This this Clement was later on in the latter half of the second century, and he was from Alexandria. And we'll see that Alexandria came to be a, a very big school when it came to theology, thinking about it, the, the Bible. Yes. Now, I, I, let me. This is a good place to interject. Uh, Neil, you have not only provided us with a beautiful timeline uh, in our uh, Google Docs, um, in our information center for this class, but you've also provided a map that shows mm-hmm. where these places are located, some of the people that are in the places, some of the big things that happen, and you're just talking about Alexandria. Alexandria was the intellectual center of the world. Um, uh, and And so before we... We go there. I want to think about Justin uh, for just another moment. Justin uh, sought to serve, to use philosophy to serve truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not see them as competing. In fact, uh, I think all of us recognize our debt to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle in forming. Uh, ways that we think and helping us to structure the ways that we think. Now, God, of course, was given his truth long before then. It was one of those preparations that you talked about so beautifully in our introductory uh, introduction session about how God had prepared the world. And so Justin was, in a sense, seeking to use philosophy to serve the truth, but... uh, Clement may have had a little bit, uh, he may have gone a little bit off the deep end. Yeah, he went even a step further, and and I'm sure even within our own congregation, we would have uh, a spectrum of comfort from Justin's defense to Clement's. Uh, he was using philosophy to point Christians to the truth of philosophy. I believe, I may be wrong, but I believe it was Clement who actually discussed um, Greek philosophy, or philosophy was given to the Greeks just like the Old Testament was given right. to the Hebrews yes. in preparation for Christ. And so so it, w- when we say all truth is God's truth, that's correct. That's true. But there but, is biblical truth that points us directly to God, and philosophy right. can't. Now, philosophy can be quite helpful. In fact, we're all philosophical in the way that we think, Mm -hmm. in the way that we talk about God even. But Clement, as we are saying, went a little bit overboard. Yeah, and I think what... um... He sort of outthought himself, didn't he? I mean, here we are. Alexandria (laughs) is this intellectual center Mm -hmm. of the Roman Empire. 
the great library. And he actually led the, the catechetical school, which, you know, we think of catechism or not as Sunday school for little kids nowadays. But no, we're talking the amphitheater of thousands of, of recruits, basically. You might call them Eager converts. Students. Yeah, students right. who want to learn more about what this Christian religion is about. And he was the top dog who was teaching this. And he tended to think out loud. He tended to think outside the box. And a lot of his thoughts he recorded that were not really based on Scripture. They were just his musings. I think that was actually one of the titles of his writings was musings. And um, he did. He tended to point Christians to the truth found in philosophy, whereas Justin used philosophy to point the Greeks to Christ. And, it, and there was a, um, not a quote, but a line by Gonzalez uh, in page 88 of, of our book, if you want to check it out, that I found quite interesting. It says, Justin used the doctrine of the Logos to show the pagans to the truth of Christianity. Clement uses the same doctrine to call Christians to be open to the truth in philosophy. So, um, maybe Brad, we can uh, sort of discuss a little bit how we can take Justin and Clement as examples for our own benefit. Where can we draw lines, if we can at all, um, of things to benefit from apologetics or maybe areas to be wary of when we start to even consider the compromise of Scripture for the for what may be found in philosophy. Well, uh, that's an excellent point. Uh, Justin was quite effective in arguing for the truth of uh, God. And in fact, he took a stab at uh, trying to explain the Trinity. Didn't mm. do nearly as well as Tertullian, who would actually have something to say about philosophy. We'll mention in just a moment. But Justin, um, in fact, paid for uh, his brilliance with his life. Mm. He bested, uh, what was his, Cretius, uh, what was our man's name? Celsus, Celsus was the one there against Christians or against Christianity. Yes, and Justin debated him and very likely was turned in by Celsus. And yeah, because at that point, um, the government wasn't actively pursuing Christians, but they would arrest you and, and kill you in a heartbeat if someone turned you in. You know what? Uh, th- this actually is a good place to pick up something that we missed last week when Mm. we talked about persecution. Let's talk just a little bit about uh, Emperor Trajan Mm -hmm. and Pliny uh, the Elder, I believe, or was he the Younger? Uh, Uh, Check our notes on that one. Right. (laughs) My friend Jimmy, when I ask him what he thinks about a particular passage, sometimes he'll he'll say, I have to check my notes to see what I believe. Right. (laughs) Uh, So... Uh, But Pliny was a governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor, and he wrote to Trajan saying, look, these Christians, they befuddle me because they they, they are very moral, but they are stubborn. They will will not sacrifice to, to, to Caesar. So what should we do with them? It was a great testimony that a, a secular ruler can write to his emperor with the things that he said, that Christians were upstanding citizens, they do everything right, they just won't pinch that incense and say, Curios Kaiser, they, they won't say Caesar is Lord, they won't sacrifice to anything but this one invisible God. And it was a great testimony, but from that we get Trajan's uh, policy, basically. Which became the policy the of the policy. Roman Empire for, for two more centuries. Two more centuries. Which was, um, that we're not going to seek out the Christians, but if they start causing trouble, take care of it. Yes. And that's what we saw. That's why we had said um, that the persecution in those first few centuries, the uh, first two and a half centuries, were very localized. So I could, if, if I were your neighbor and I didn't like you, yeah. I could go to the local authorities and say, Neil Manning refuses to sacrifice to Caesar. He refuses to say that Caesar is Lord. And the authorities would say, look, don't you have something better to do? But if I had enough influence, I could, the authorities would then call you in and they didn't want to. They weren't looking most of the time to persecute Christians. But according to this policy of Trajan, 
they felt compelled to ask you. And then if you refused, they did everything they could to get you to change your mind. Go ahead and worship Jesus. Just, just say Caesar is Lord and that's all you'll ever have to do, ever. But they refused to do it. Well, yeah. Justin was a victim of this policy. Uh, because he bested his opponent, he was <laughs> turned in, most likely. Right. That's what, what historians think. And, um, and then put to death. And he died very nobly and very well uh, for his faith in Christ. But he used philosophy to... Um, to try to further the cause of Christ and to help people understand Scripture philosophically. And, and, and I think a, a modern-day example, although probably more orthodox than, than Justin was, would be Ravi Zacharias. Mm. Ravi Zacharias will take the truth of Christianity to, to Muslims, and he will say, in fact, he will say, you know, we have areas of agreement, but let me... But. Under, to help you understand why this truth makes more sense than your truth. Mm-hmm. Why this is the real truth. This is the better way. It's truth itself. And uh, Justin sought to do that. I say he wasn't as orthodox, but remember, Justin didn't have the Bible in front of him like we do, which is going to bring us uh, to our next segment about Scripture. They didn't have the systematic theology books that we do, right? <laughs> right, but <laughs> if... Been written. But, but, but... So many times, uh, I think Christians, uh, when they approach uh, witnessing from a philosophical standpoint, if they're not very careful, they begin to see too much value in other religions. Mm -hmm. And they feel too comfortable. And, well, okay, you know, we're all worshiping the same God. And uh, we just use different terminology. We use different... Yeah, I think you're right. We've got to be very careful we have to be sure that we're grounded in in truth before we go out being familiar with other theologies other religions other philosophies so that like you were saying Ravi Zacharias they these guys do not compromise they seek ground of agreement but they do it without compromising the truth of the gospel and um, going back to where these guys lived and the policy in place that ended Justin's life, we actually see Tertullian writing to the Roman government in response to this policy that the Trajan put in place. And he says, why are you even considering, why are you capturing and killing Christians? We are your best citizens. We're the ones who are told to honor the emperor, pray for him. We, we pay our taxes. We do all these things. And again, we hear that both, both from the bishop as well as from the ruler of Bithynia and others as well. And Tertullian also had something to say about philosophy in the church, didn't he? Um, he yes. lived at the same time as Clement. And again, Clement of Alexandria was very philosophical in his theology. What about Tertullian? Uh, Tertullian said, asked the question, what has Jerusalem to do with Athens? What does the church have to do with the academy? Why do you seek to make Christianity just another discipline of thought? It's something entirely different. It is straight from God. It is directly from God. And it has to do with God and his word and his scripture. Don't worry about philosophy. But that was, of course, not the... uh, that was not the track that a lot of Christians took. And, and so Origen, who we really don't have time to get into, mm-hmm. he's an interesting study, took this um, took over from Clement, did he not? He did, yeah. He took over the catechetical school. He was very zealous for, uh, for Christianity. And I, I can think of few others in church history who were as polar as Origen. He did so much good, but was destructive in many ways and um, I'll be interested to maybe take a look at him if not in our video sessions then on the discussion boards where we can dig a little deeper and and converse with one another. John Calvin uh, actually said that Origen was a tool of the devil (laughs) that he did a a great deal more harm than than good. Well uh, these different uh, strains of thought led to the, it was the, the, the beginnings of a division between East and West. And we'll, we'll get into all of that. And also, 
uh, in the East, there were two different schools of thought in Antioch and in Alexandria, right. and, and much to be uh, discussed. But our next segment in this class is going to deal with canon. Sean is going to come along and talk to us about, because this is of particular interest to Sean, he's going to talk to us about uh, how uh, at, at a certain point people said, we need authority in front of us. You know, it's great to have the bishop in Rome, but when we've got people in Alexandria arguing, what yeah. is the standard? And so the standard is the word of God. We, again, not not that they didn't have scriptures, they did, but they didn't have them in the same form that we have today. And this is what we talked about in a previous segment that uh, Marcionism did for Christianity. What heresy does to serve the church is it drives us to our authority. So they had the authority. They believed in the authority of Scripture, but heresy forced them to codify it, to yes, pull it, it all together. It did, and it also forced them to take doctrinal positions, mm. which is what we'll talk about next week when we have a special guest, Adam English from Campbell University, who's going to be talking to us, and, and, and David as well, I believe, about the 4th century. That all imported... Uh, century that has so much to do today. Well, uh, we'll take a break and then we'll be back with Sean. Well, for the last segment of our class today, Sean Cross joins us here on the Church History Set to talk about canon. How did we get the New Testament? Sean, this is a, a question that a, a lot of people have today. In the early church, the the the, the church dealt with heresy by investing a lot of authority in the bishops. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, we've already quoted, said, you want to know whether a leader is telling the truth? He probably wouldn't say want to. But he said, do you want to know when a bishop or when a, a leader is telling the truth? What does the bishop say? And more and more this authority began to move toward Rome. Well, uh, what about when bishops disagree? Because that was increasingly the case by the time we get to uh, Nicaea in the early 4th century, we see a, a lot of disagreement. Well, not as much there as there would be later in that century. But what about when the bishops disagree? What do we do then as a church? Well, I think <clears throat> it's important, and it was important for the church, to remind themselves of what they already believed and what they were already devoting themselves to, and that was the apostles' teaching. Uh, and so it was easier to um, have unity among the bishops the closer they were to the apostolic witness and presence. Uh, and, and the further they got, much like uh, here in the United States, the further we get from the, the founding fathers and the, the Constitution, um, the more interpretive differences and arguments we, we seem to be um, having. Uh, and, and we're still much closer to that than 4th century was to, to the apostolic you know, presence. Okay, okay. You, you use this term apostolic witness. Uh, the apostles were no longer around midway through the second century, third century. What, what then? How do we have the... We've talked about apostolic succession, but, but what was the apostolic witness? Well, we know uh, just from reading Scripture that, that the apostles wrote letters. Uh, and, and they wrote those letters to different churches and they addressed different issues and concerns. Um, and, and when you talk about canon and when you talk about how we got all these... D define canon. Uh, sure. The, uh, canon, the best way, I, I think, to talk about canon is to talk about a measuring stick of truth. Um, and so, you know, when we're thinking about weight or when we're thinking about trade, you know, it's not unusual in, in that specific field of life to have standardized measurements so that we can't say, well... This is a pound, and, and this, which is clearly much lighter, is also a pound, and charge the same price. We need to standardize. Um, and so we have units of measurements. We have ways to measure how authentically a pound that is. And so canon could be looked at as, as the measuring stick for truth. Right. Uh, and so what we have is, is our works by which we can test all truth claims that are made. And we can measure them up and say, yes, this is true, or no, this is, this is not true. Um, and so, so that would be the definition of, of canon that, that I, I would use. Well, the early church uh, 
clearly understood the Old Testament uh, writings of Scripture. Um, but they also knew that in Christ they had to interpret the Old Testament differently. We've talked a lot at our church this past year in Genesis how everything in Scripture in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Everything in the New Testament points to Jesus. But the New Testament did not exist in that day. So not only did the early church recognize they had to understand the Old Testament differently in light of Jesus, but they didn't know how this life in Christ would play itself out or would reveal itself. So uh, we've we've already talked about uh, the Montanus, Montanus who said, okay, the Spirit is doing a new thing. He did a thing at Pentecost when Jesus died, resurrected, and then the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Now it's a new thing going on. And the church rejected that. So how did they understand Jesus? How did they understand the life that they were called to in Christ? Right. And so just to reiterate that, Jesus told the apostles, Jesus told them, you know, make disciples. And part of that is teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And so there needed to be a faithful witness of what Jesus commanded. And not only that, how to observe those things, how to see Jesus in the Old Testament, just like you're saying. Uh, And and maybe a a common misconception might be that the, the early church only thought of the Old Testament as Scripture and looked at the apostolic teaching sort of as instruction on that. Um, right. But you can even see in the epistles um, that Peter wrote, and, and, and I, I'd actually like to, to read that, Second Peter uh, chapter 3, Peter's writing to the church, and, and what he says is, um, count the patient of patience of our Lord as salvation. This is Second Peter 3, uh, 15, and we'll read through 16. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him. And I think it's important for us to remember that that he didn't take that wisdom, he didn't earn it. It was given him by whom? By Jesus. Uh, Directly. Directly, right. And as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, um, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. I I think most of us would agree with that. (laughs) Very true. Uh, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do, and here's the key phrase, as they do the other scriptures. Uh, And so Peter doesn't say as they do the scriptures. Right. He says the other scriptures. And so what he's doing is including Paul's writings in this, we can't say canon, that's that's not accurate, uh, but... He's including Paul's writings as scripture. And that word, that word uh, for scripture, graphos, is the same word that, that Jesus uses time and time again when he talks about the Old Testament, when he talks about the scriptures. And so early on, we see that what, what Peter is saying and, and what we can come to know and assume that the apostles in the church understood was that when the apostles wrote rightly about Jesus, which every time they wrote about Jesus, it was rightly. That's correct. Um, they were authoritative. Okay, uh, then let's think about how did the church know what rose to the level of being worthy to be called Scripture and what did not? Because clearly there were a lot of writings out there, and, and not all of those writings were. It wasn't as clear as, oh, this is really good, this is really bad. This is clearly Scripture, this is not. We're talking about letters becoming scripture. How did the, what rose to that level? Well, certainly there was criteria um, that needed to be met. And, and when we say that, what we're not saying is that a group of people sat down and determined these five or six checkpoints need to all be met. Um, and if they are, then it's in. And if they're not, then it's out. Um, Ritterboss uh, has, a, has a great quote where he says to to say that the early church chose what was sacred and what was authoritative and and what wasn't would be like asking a child on what basis he he chose his father and his mother to be his parents um, so you're saying that God is the one who is 
God ultimately is superintending all of these things, but there seem to be some consistent criteria. One of those, as we've already talked about, is is apostolic authorship or at least uh, a connection, connection. A connection with an apostle. To the apostle. So, for instance, Mark's gospel, Mark was closely connected with Peter, as we're going to be seeing in our church. Well, by the time this film is out, we will have already talked about this. Right, and and it's important to remember that what we're looking at is Jesus' teaching. And so Jesus directly taught the apostles, and in Mark's case, he, he was with Peter and, and had that direct instruction. Um, and so, so that was one of the very important criteria. However, there's a lot of apostolic work, and even one degree removed from the apostles, there's a lot of work that we have. And not all of that is in. You know, Paul wrote more letters, say, to the Corinthians than just two. Right. Um, but not all of that is in. And so there was other right. criteria. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, Clement of Rome wrote right, a right, letter right. to uh, the, the Corinthians that was highly regarded. It was a little later, but you're, I think you're going to talk about that. Right. Well, it does lead into the, one of the, the next point, uh, which is antiquity. Uh, that, that is how... how contemporary was it but in a converse way than we're used to and in our culture we understand that the newer things are the better Um, that is unique very unique to world history and even to the world today Um, especially when you consider that christianity started its roots are eastern Um, and and so ancient and and established were important but that's not the only reason that that was the criteria. Again, we want proximity to Jesus. Uh, and so writings that were written, say, in 60 A.D. would have had much higher circulation already and much more consideration than, say, something written in 200 or in A.D. 200. And, and, uh, <clears throat> and so that, that also helps us when we consider claims made about, say, Second Peter, um, which we just read, um, a, a conservative understanding of that would say that Second uh, Peter was written by Peter, and so that places it before seventy or sixty-seven. But at the same time, he's addressing a work of Paul, which places it after sixty. And so now we have this tight placement: so sixty-two to sixty-five, um, likely. But uh, more liberal scholarship would place it in at one fifty. Um, which would also mean that Peter was dead. Right. Uh, so the Apostle John wrote late in the first century, but it was the Apostle John. Right. Uh, so um, he was connected with Jesus, and even though his was a little later, it was while the man who was connected with Jesus is still alive. What else? So we've got a- apostolic witness uh, uh, or a connection, um, and, and then also antiquity written in the Early days, not far removed from Jesus. Uh, orthodoxy was important. Uh, orthodoxy simply means right thinking. Right. Uh, and so, you know, this, this comes into play. A lot of people will say there was something that the church or that the powers that be in the church wanted to believe at the exclusion of all the other things. Uh, and to an extent, that's right. They wanted to believe truth at the exclusion of falsehood. Correct. And so, um, so a Gnostic gospel... And yes, its teaching we, of Jesus would necessarily exclude itself from um, consideration for being a part of this canon. Uh, because it didn't rightly testify to Jesus or to the Old Testament. Uh, remember, uh, the Christians regarded the Old Testament as scripture. And so something wasn't going to come in that contradicted the apostolic witness or the Old Testament. Uh, and right. so that's orthodoxy. And, and we've said in the past, or it has been said... In, in, in this class already, that orthodoxy is, is, is sort of its majority rule. Well, that's, that's that basic principle in, in play, is that um, if it did not affirm what the apostles taught about Jesus or the Old Testament, then it wasn't included. It's important to note that orthodoxy is not to say that it was homogenous. It's not to say that every word of every page, so, so for example, the Gospels, they don't 
read in the same order. They don't use the same language. There's actually stories that account differently what happened. There's two angels in one account. There's one angel in another. Uh, and what's interesting is that F.F. F. Bruce, who, who's a, a biblical scholar and, and he spent a lot of time on canon, actually has said that that was helpful it in was, criteria yes. selection uh, because they wanted that robust witness and they, they, they wanted... The full picture. And it's also clearly not contrived. Right. If they wanted to foist something on the world, they would have gotten their stories exactly, identically the same, so that there would be no one who could say, well, there's a a contradiction. Uh, Speaking of which, um, as we talk about its trustworthiness, uh, Scripture's trustworthiness, and and we think about... Um, you've already discussed how there had to meet scripture had to meet certain criteria. It was late in the fourth century before the church agreed. These are the 27 books that constitute the new Testament. So what about before that is did, did, did these books just all of a sudden appear? I, I mean, well, that actually goes right into the next criteria, which is Catholicity. Uh, and and so what we have to realize is Catholic, letters were defined Catholicity. We've talked sure, about sure, the sure. Catholic Church, uh, and it's an understanding of the Catholic means universal, right? And so These there were, were letters circling accepted. all around the church. Uh, there were letters that that were regional, right? Because they were written to specific churches in specific region, and some had regional appeal and were read, and and they were apostolic and they were orthodox, but they they didn't speak to the church universal. Uh, And so they wouldn't have had universal, um, appeal is not the right word, the better word is universal use. And uh, it wasn't uh, submitted to or or circulated is the better word universally. Uh, And so, so those texts would not have received as much consideration as texts that were um, circulated around the entire church and read pretty universally in worship services and, and were used for teaching pretty universally around around the church. Um, so uh, if someone were to argue, well, it was the 4th century before, late 4th century before before the church agreed on what was uh, worthy of being called scripture and what was not, um, you, would, you would respond by saying that all of, these letters were in circulation and widely accepted. In fact, many of the theological arguments that were made earlier were made on the basis of these letters and books. And yeah, I would I would also uh, I would also say something similar to what F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, who clearly I've been leaning on a lot, um, similar to what Bruce said, um, and that is just that it's it's not the right approach to think that. Um, some books were included and some books were excluded based on criterion, whether they be set by individuals or by councils or synods and that there was this... Or even the government. Right, that there was this method of inclusion of some and exclusion of others. But rather, the, the better way to think of it is that some books simply excluded themselves. Mm. Uh, and And... That would be the final criterion, the, the, the criteria that Bruce uses, and, and that's inspiration. And that's, that's a little bit harder to place your finger on. And so you could have something that was apostolic. You could have something that was orthodox. You could have something that was fairly universal, fairly Clement's, Catholic. Clement's letter is going to be one of those examples. Exactly, exactly. Um, written somewhere when? In the uh, mid-2nd century, I believe. Or right. Early to mid-2nd century. Early Early second, early second, okay. but um, but but that's a perfect example. Widely circulated, orthodox, and and again, orthodox meant that it claimed that Jesus was Lord and it spoke rightly of that. But um, but then there's inspiration, uh, and inspiration was harder to put your finger on, and 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 I guess the best way to understand it was that it rightly spoke to the Old Testament in light of Jesus and to the works of Jesus in an authoritative way that also had behind it saving power. 
and, and that, w- that was just witnessed by the church. And, and maybe we could look at that in our own sense and say, I've, written a, I've read a lot of great, wonderful books by wonderful Orthodox authors from, from Augustine to Keller. But it's only the word contained in Scripture right. that transformed my heart. And, and that that saved and and that experience is not unique to us. No, but it, I think almost all of us who claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior would say that yes, we see that as true. Uh, Sean, I don't mean to cut you off, but we're just about out of time, and I, I want your response on this. How how can how can the people in this class be confident that this is indeed the Word of God? How can we know that the scriptures that we have? Are God's word. Well, I, at the risk of a cheap cliche, I think the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. Um, I think that as you preach and teach this word, lives are changed. Amen. And it, on top of everything else that you've said, it's the, the life-giving qualities that are in the word. Yeah. Well, thank you. See you next time.